Well, this morning we are looking at the first half of Mark chapter 5. Our sermon text is Mark 5, verses 1 to 20. Uh, Ordinarily, I would read the sermon passage all the way through at the outset, uh, but I want to do things a little bit differently this morning. So first, I just want to introduce the passage this morning very briefly. And in order to introduce the passage, I just want to read the first two verses of the passage and make some comments. Uh, Then after that, I want to take a few minutes to think together about a piece of the biblical worldview that undergirds this passage, something that Mark is assuming to be true that we need to think together about, I think, in order to understand this passage well. And then after that, I just want us to walk straight through the passage together, uh, verse by verse. So introduce the passage, think about a piece of the Christian worldview, and then walk through the passage In the sermon, we will read, Lord willing, the entire text. So as I introduce the passage, let me just remind you that Jesus has spent chapter 4 of Mark's gospel on a boat. Uh, The first 34 verses of chapter 4, Jesus spends the day teaching from a boat just off the shore, probably of Capernaum, teaching to a crowd that is assembled on the shore. In the last few verses of chapter 4, remember we saw Jesus spends the night crossing the Sea of Galilee on a boat. Remember that voyage is interrupted by a huge storm that Jesus miraculously uh, calms. Well, look with me at the first two verses of our passage. Uh, First, look at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, you need to know that that is in Gentile territory. Look at verse 2. It says, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, or as it's called later in the passage, a demon. So that is how Mark introduces the central drama of this passage. This passage is a confrontation between the Lord Jesus and a man who is possessed by a demon. You may remember this is not the first time we've seen demon possession in Mark's gospel, both in Mark chapter 1 and in Mark chapter 3. Mark mentions that Jesus' ministry included casting out demons. It's very important to note that Mark clearly distinguishes between the casting out of demons and the healing of the sick. Mark knows the difference between someone who is sick and someone who is demon-possessed. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 34, it says, And he, Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So Mark sees those activities as related but different things. So I'm pointing that out to show you that Mark is not superstitious. He doesn't think that every form of physical affliction is up to demons, right? That there's a demon behind every ache and pain in everyone's body. That's really important to understand because many people have tried to explain away the demon possession that we see in the Gospels as psychologically disturbed individuals. It's been suggested that really Mark is describing schizophrenia, or multiple personality disorder, or some other psychological thing going on just from a pre-modern perspective, right? He didn't know any better, but now we know that's what was going on in these stories. But our passage makes abundantly clear that's not what Mark is talking about. 
Mark is writing about a man who is inhabited or possessed by an evil supernatural being that the Bible calls a demon. So that is kind of the piece of the biblical worldview that we need to talk about. Having introduced this passage, which is about Jesus and a demon-possessed man, we need to spend a few minutes thinking about the reality of Satan and demons and what the Bible says about them. Now, it might surprise you uh, to learn that a brief historical survey reveals or seems to indicate uh, that most people in human history have believed in demons. So Carl Sagan was a renowned astronomer, and he was an atheist. He himself did not believe in demons. Uh, But listen to what he writes about how prevalent belief in demons is throughout a 2,000-year period of history. He says, despite successive waves of rationalist, Persian, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim worldviews, despite revolutionary social, political, and philosophical ferment, the existence, much of the character, and even the name of demons remains unchanged. Again, that's throughout a 2,000-year period of Western history. You might think, okay, well, belief in demons has good support throughout history, but it's a bit outdated. Well, not so. So scholar Peter Williams records examples of belief in demons within Western modern academia. So William Wilson, who is the professor emeritus of psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center, right? Not a Christian school. This man regards as purely psychological many problems popularly attributed to demons today, but he insists that there are real cases, including some that he has encountered, of actual spirits. Uh, Anthropologist Alan Tippett, who holds a PhD in anthropology from the University of Oregon, again, not a Christian school, he writes that when one has eliminated the spurious or fake and psychopathological or originating in the mind cases, one is still left with a considerable residue of material which appears to be genuine demon possession. So, other people's testimony to the existence of demons is helpful. It's certainly interesting, but that's actually not why Christians believe that there are demons. We believe that there are demons because we have become convinced that the Bible is the inerrant word of God Almighty. And the Bible speaks very, very clearly to the existence of demons. In fact, the existence of demons is actually integral to the story of the Bible. It's not a piece that you can sort of extract and leave the rest intact. You might be familiar with the very first verse in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, on one level, what that means is that God created planet earth and he created everything else, right? Everything in the sky. But as the story of the Bible unfolds, it also becomes clear that part of what God is alluding to when he says that he creates the heavens and the earth, is that God has created two distinct but interconnected realms. One realm is visible to us, and that's earth. The other realm most of the time remains invisible to us, but it's every bit as real. 
And the Bible calls that realm heaven. The Bible teaches that just like the visible realm of earth is populated, it's inhabited, so also the invisible realm of heaven is populated by created spiritual beings. Some of these spiritual beings are loyal to God. The Bible often calls them angels. They are his servants. Others of these beings were created good, but they rebelled against God, and now they hate God and the people created in God's image. The Bible calls these created and fallen spiritual beings who live in the invisible realm of heaven demons. And the head or ringleader of these demons is Satan or the devil. He shows up, you know, on the first few pages of the Bible in the form of a serpent. So frustratingly, the Bible is not concerned to answer all the questions we might have about the invisible realm. The Bible tells us what we need to know. Sometimes, unfortunately, that's less than we'd like to know. Not unfortunately, because God knows best. But the Bible does very clearly teach that somehow the inhabitants of the invisible realm can sometimes affect the inhabitants of the earthly realm in a variety of ways. One of those ways is through what we see in the passage, through demon possession, when a demon sort of takes up residence in a person's body and exercises control over it. But what's very interesting is the Bible teaches that's actually a relatively rare form of demonic activity. The Bible teaches that Satan and his demons do many other much more subtle things all the time. But let me just give you five examples of things the Bible says that Satan and his demons do. So first, the Bible teaches that Satan and his demons promote human selfishness and hatred. They promote human selfishness and hatred. In the New Testament book of James, in James chapter 3, as James is writing about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, he says that that can be connected to demonic influence. Throughout the Bible, all kinds of temptation to sin, the lies that make sin plausible that we believe that lead us into sin, they're connected with Satan. So when you are full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, when you're consumed with envy over other people's success or looks or skills or family life, when you're jealous over the praise and attention that other people receive, when you're full of selfish ambition to be on top, to be in control, to be at the center, to get what you want. The Bible says, it doesn't exactly spell out how this happens, but it does tell us there can be demonic influence behind that kind of human selfishness and hatred. A second form of demonic activity I'll highlight. The Bible teaches that Satan and his demons cause spiritual blindness. We saw this in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Remember, Satan was the bird that snatches the seed from the path before it has a chance to take root. So sometimes when the life-giving seed of the gospel goes out, when it's communicated, Satan prevents people from understanding it. He snatches the seed before it can take root. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes Satan as the one who blinds the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing and believing in the gospel. A third form of satanic activity, the Bible teaches that Satan and his demons promote hostility to God. Satan loves to stir up in the hearts of unbelievers 
and believers an aversion to God. Surely we all know what it is to be averse to someone, literally from the Latin for turned away, right? You're going to an event, and you know that so-and-so is going to be at the event, and you feel, oh my goodness, I hope that I don't have to talk to so-and-so. It would be really nice to avoid so-and-so. Or in more extreme cases, you might even think, man, I am sick at the thought of seeing that person, right? If I see them, I'm going to punish them with my anger. Listen, the Bible teaches that Satan stirs up that kind of attitude in our hearts toward God. And Satan does this in the hearts of unbelievers and to some extent in the heart of believers, James chapter 4 teaches that when Satan tempts people toward the selfishness and worldliness that comes so easy to us, he's making our hearts hostile toward God. So friend, listen, I know that we're at church, right? We've all put on our best, and that's appropriate. But if you're honest, can you see in your heart at times hostility toward God? a deep desire not to have anything to do with him, to avoid him. So John Owen, he was one of the godliest and most learned theologians ever. John Owen was a serious Christian. Well, Owen writes about a, quote, cursed and secret dislike of God and his ways that affects even the hearts of godly believers. The Bible teaches that Satan loves to stir that up in our hearts, to egg us on in our aversion to God. The fourth satanic activity, the Bible describes Satan as the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. It's from the book of Revelation. Satan is a merciless prosecuting attorney intent on your damnation. Satan loves to bring up your guilt before God in his tribunal. So the Bible doesn't explicitly teach this, but I, I can't help but wonder that this activity of Satan accusing believers before God somehow lands in the conscience of the believer. I wonder if this doesn't have something to do with how accused Christians often feel in their own hearts. I'm not the first to wonder this. So often, godly believers who love Jesus, right, whose sins are forgiven, who are walking in the light, who hate their sin, who are pursuing obedience, they feel so terribly accused and condemned on the inside. They feel that their sin disqualifies them from receiving God's mercy. They feel that he will not help them or hear them. I can't help but wonder if that has something to do with the work of Satan, the accuser. The fifth and final activity of Satan that I'll highlight from the scriptures is that Satan is responsible for unleashing guilt and misery and death on humanity. So Hebrews chapter 2 calls Satan the one who has the power of death. That's not because Satan has the power to sort of kill anyone he wants at will. It's because what we find in the first pages of the Bible is that the reason that the world is full of evil and death and misery is because Satan tempted mankind to rebel against God. 
the tragedy of the human story in the Bible is that we have sided with Satan against God. And in so doing, we've cut ourselves off from the source of all life and goodness. So that's a very brief overview of the Bible's teaching on the activity of Satan and demons. But the Bible's teaching is that whether or not we have encountered demon possession, we live in a world where many of the things that afflict us have Satan's fingerprints all over them. So friend, if you find Mark's story unbelievable because it's got demons in it, just consider for a minute how well secular society has done solving these problems. The problem of selfishness, the problem of hatred, the problem of blindness to what the world is really like, the problem of guilt, the problem of misery, the problem of death. Friend, before you dismiss Mark's solution as ridiculous, would you consider what he has to offer in answer to these problems? It's important we understand what the Bible teaches about the reality and the power of Satan and his demons in order to make sense of our passage from Mark chapter 5. We'll spend, Lord willing, the rest of our time this morning walking through Mark chapter 5. So as with all of his stories, Mark is telling us this story for a reason. And I trust that as we look at his narrative, his reason will become evident. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Those verses say, they came to the other side of the sea, Jesus and his disciples, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. So right out of the gate, Mark chapter 5 begins on a note of conflict. Uh, That word used, I'm sorry, that word that gets translated as met, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. That word seems to have here the idea of an intentional confrontation. This guy doesn't happen upon Jesus. He rushes upon Jesus. No sooner does Jesus' foot touch the shore than we have on our hands a showdown. It's a fight. Jesus versus the demon-possessed man. Look there in verses 3 to 5. Mark starts to describe one of the combatants here. Mark writes, he, the demon-possessed man, lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones." Two things to see in Mark's description of this man here. First, we see that the demon possession in this man has done what we've already seen Satan loves to do to a great extreme. Right? These demons have stirred up hatred and violence in this man. So much so that his community has tried to lock him up several times. These demons have stirred up great hostility toward Jesus. These demons have this man out of his mind and intent on self-harm. Notice how Mark's account associates this man with death. The very first words that Mark uses to describe this man are out of the tombs. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs. Right? 
Satan's signature is here in bold relief. This guy is at home in the graveyards. He is the living dead. He is the product of Satan's gruesome work, the victim of Satan's worst oppression. The second thing we need to see about this description of this man is that Mark could hardly be clearer that no one is stronger than this man's demons, right? He, he couldn't be more emphatic. He says he's twisting off chains like they're twizzlers, right? That's not schizophrenia. This guy has a demon. There at the end of verse 3, as Mark is describing how this man can't be bound, we can't quite see it in the English, but in the Greek, Mark uses the prefix no three times really rapidly. So it's almost like Mark says, this man could no, no, not be bound. In case we've missed the point there in verse four, he says it very clearly. No one had the strength to subdue him. So there we have combatant number one. In this corner of the ring, a chain-ripping, tomb-dwelling, unconquerable demon guy. So who's in the other corner? Who's come to fight this formidable enemy? Well, in the other corner, of course, is Jesus. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as we sing in the hymn. Or so we think. What does this shackle-busting demon guy say about Jesus there in verses 6 to 8? Look at verses 6 to 8. It says, And when when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And that makes you wonder the way this demon addresses Jesus, whether this inhabitant of the invisible realm has had prior experience with Jesus Right, This demon instantly knows him to be the son of the most high God with authority to torment him. Right? This demon is not repentant. In fact, he, he seems to show aggression in the way that he addresses Jesus. In Jesus' day, it was believed that in a spiritual conflict, if one party could use the other's name first, That would give that party an upper hand in the conflict. That seems to be why these demons shout out that Jesus is the son of the most high God as an almost mocking attempt to control him. Well, suffice to say, it doesn't work. Look at verse 9. It says, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? Jesus is like, yeah, okay, nice try. What's your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. A legion was a Roman military unit with thousands of soldiers. So it turns out that this man is possessed not by one, but by thousands of different demons. And notice how these thousands of hostile, unconquerable demons respond to Jesus. Look at verses 10 to 13. Notice the authority words that Mark uses. Mark writes, and they begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. Right, this man that Mark has said very clearly, no one has the strength to subdue. 
what are the words that characterize this guy's interaction with Jesus? Verse 10, begged. Verse 12, begged. Verse 13, permission. Right? There's no question who is on top here. Early in the story, Mark had said, no one had the strength to subdue him. You remember how Jesus was introduced to us in the gospel of Mark? When John the Baptist says, after me comes one who is literally stronger than I. Remember what Jesus said is happening in Mark chapter 3 when he's plundering the strong man's house? No one can plunder the strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man. Who's the strong man in the passage? Could it be clearer that it's Jesus? Look there in verse 13. What happens? So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now listen, I have to be honest with you. I have a lot of questions about that. You've got questions, and you're hoping that I can answer your questions. I've been reading the commentaries all week, and they don't know the answers to the questions, right? There's a lot that's confusing here. Why don't the demons want to leave the country? Is it because their power is tied to some sort of geographical area? In Luke's gospel, they say they just don't want to go into the abyss. Is there some reason that the only alternatives are the abyss or this country? Right? Why do the demons want to inhabit the pigs? Why is that better than like floating around in demon space? Right? Why does Jesus let them inhabit the pigs? Is it in order to demonstrate how many demons he has authority over? Not just one, but 2,000 pigs worth of demons? Is it to amp up the magnitude of the sign? Maybe. Why do the demons kill all the pigs? Why the mass swine suicide? Right? Is there some sort of symbolism that the pigs end up in the sea that Jesus has just calmed miraculously? What's the significance of the fact that these are unclean spirits and the pigs are unclean animals? Well, these are very interesting questions. And Mark doesn't seem that concerned to answer them for us. And whatever questions we might have, it's very important that we don't miss the forest for the trees. So some of the details might be confusing, but Mark's main point could not be clearer. Jesus, with his words, powerfully delivers this wretched man from 2,000 pigs worth of vicious, deadly demons that no one else could conquer. Right, do you see the point that Mark is making in the passage? What is Mark showing us about Jesus? Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God, strong enough to deliver you from Satan. That is the point of the passage. So listen, if you've got Satan problems, if you're ensnared in sins of selfishness and envy and hatred, if you're blind to spiritual reality, if your heart is hostile toward God, if you're a sinner living in a miserable world headed for death, if you've got real guilt on your ledger and a merciless accuser, who do you need? 
You need this Jesus, strong enough to deliver you from Satan. It's so interesting, on, on the one hand, whenever we study the Bible, it's so important to remember, the Bible's not primarily about us, right? We need to do the hard work of displacing ourselves and understanding the Bible in its context. That's very, very important. But on the other hand, as we've done that, going through the Gospel of Mark, Hasn't it been so clear that Mark intends for these people who need Jesus' help to be pictures of us? Right? Think about this poor, poor man, out of his mind, full of aggression and violence, right? naked, self-inflicted gashes on his body from cutting himself with stones, crying out like an animal, living in a graveyard, already as good as dead, the picture of uncleanness, miserable and alone. Friends, that's where we would be apart from God's grace and kindness to us in Jesus. See, in our sin and rebellion against God, we have sided with Satan against God. But we find Satan to be an exceedingly terrible teammate, right? We've believed Satan's lie that God is not good, that God's authority can be defied. And so as horrible as it is that we're afflicted by Satan, it's not anything more than what we've deserved. But the good news of the gospel of Mark is that Jesus is strong enough to deliver you from Satan, Jesus is the son of the most high God with power to snatch you out of the dominion of darkness, just like he did for this man in this passage. And you know how he does that, right? Right, this demon-possessed man, he is bleeding and naked and alone, and he meets Jesus from the tombs. Well, before the gospel of Mark is over, Jesus will be bleeding and naked and alone as he dies on a cross to bear the guilt of sinners, and he will be laid in a tomb, only to burst out three days later when God raises him from the dead. So friend, this morning, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, first let me add my welcome to Jim's. You are so welcome to be here. We're so glad that you're here. Let me ask you what might be uh, an odd-sounding question. Do you want to be delivered from Satan? Do you want to be delivered from selfishness? Do you want your eyes to be opened spiritually to see the world as God sees it? Do you want to know God not as a hostile power from whom you run, but as a loving father, as your kind and forgiving father? Do you want to be set on a trajectory that ends not in death, not in the tombs, but in eternal life? Do you want a defense attorney who can truly deal with the guilt that Satan accuses you with? Friend, if you do, then ask this Jesus for help. He died to free sinners from the penalty of their sins. He rose from the dead. He is now in the invisible realm, seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he is mightily at work to save all who will trust in him. If you'd like to learn more about that, please don't hesitate to talk to me, to anyone you've seen up here after the service. Uh, brothers and sisters, for those of us who do know the Lord, this passage is such an important reminder that Jesus is able to change anyone. The transforming grace of Jesus 
is bigger than the corrupting influence of Satan in your life. Look here at what happens in verses 14 and 15, right? After Jesus meets this demonized man. There in verses 14 and 15, we see the herdsmen of the pigs fled, right? No kidding. And they told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. In another of the Gospels, it says that this man was sitting at Jesus' feet, a sign of submission to his lordship. Christian, listen, if Jesus can change this demon-possessed, self-harming, unbindable, violent outcast into someone sitting calmly at his feet, he can change you. So listen, whatever you're struggling with, you need to know that Jesus is strong enough to change you. Whatever baggage you've got, whatever hurt you're carrying around, however dysfunctional or addicted you are, however bad you've been so far, Jesus can change you. Christian, don't despair in your fight against sin. Don't despair in the spiritual warfare that Satan loves to wage against your soul. It's so important that we see that Jesus is strong enough to change us, to transform us, to make us fully and finally one day in his image. That's why it's so important that we see the glory of Christ in this passage so that we know he's strong enough to change us. And Christ's glory certainly has been displayed through this mighty work. What does the end of verse 15 say was the response of those who saw the evidence of Jesus' power. There in verse 15, it says that they were afraid. It reminds us of the disciples who watched Jesus bring peace to a violent storm. What was the end result of that? They saw Jesus' glory and they were afraid. Jesus now brings peace to this violent man. And those who see his power in that, they are afraid, right? Jesus has flexed his divine bicep again. The locals see Jesus' divine power and they are afraid. Friend, when that happens, when Jesus reveals his glory, there are two responses that we might have. And Mark illustrates that for us in the final verses of this passage. Two possible responses to the glory of Jesus when it's revealed. The first response is there in verses 16 and 17. Look there. It says, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Isn't that sad? These people see something of the power, the authority of Jesus, and they realize what a threat he is to their status quo, to their wealth, to their comfort. And so they want Jesus to leave. Friend, listen, it's possible to catch a glimpse of who Jesus is, but to want nothing to do with him because his authority is a threat to what we really love. It's possible that when we realize that Jesus' lordship endangers our love for other stuff, that we want to push Jesus away. 
But there's another response when we glimpse the glory of Jesus. It's the response of the believer who understands that Jesus has delivered him by his might and his mercy. Is there in verses 18 to 20. Look first at verse 18. It says, And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Did you notice the repetition of that word begged in the passage? The demons beg Jesus to let them enter the pigs. The locals beg Jesus to leave. This man begs that he might be with Jesus. Friend, when you know Jesus as the one who has rescued you from death and sin and misery and transferred you to his own kingdom of life and peace, you want nothing more than to be with him. Remember, that's how Mark describes discipleship. Those who are with Jesus are those who are trusting in him, those who are following him. The desire to be with Jesus, it comes from seeing all that he's done for us. So Christian, when, when that hostility toward God rears its ugly head in our hearts, when the aversion to praying, right, the aversion to church, the aversion to the Bible, when you see the cursed and secret dislike of God and his ways in your heart, remember all that Jesus has done to you, for you. Remember his sweet mercy in delivering you. Remember that he was laid in a tomb for your sins. Remind your heart where you would be without him. This man is right to beg to be with Jesus. But in Jesus' wisdom, at this time, he has other good plans for this man. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, and he did not permit him. I'm out. It's interesting, the only person who doesn't get what he begs in this passage is the one who Jesus loves. The demons, they get what they beg. Do they ultimately receive mercy? No. The people who reject Jesus, they get what they beg for. Do they ultimately receive mercy? No. But this man on whom Jesus sets his love, he begs for something that's so good. He wants to be with Jesus. Does he get what he wants in this passage? Not yet. Right, Christian, if God's saying no to you about something in your life, don't think it's because he doesn't love you. Verse 19, verse 20, and he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Jesus generally has been telling people not to spread the news about him. But here, probably because this man is in Gentile territory where there are not already false concepts about what the Messiah would be and do, Jesus tells this man, go spread the news. Tell everyone how much the Lord has done for him. And friends, isn't this the other thing that we're called to do when we see the glory of Jesus in his great mercy to us? Don't we want to go out and tell everyone how much Jesus has done for us and how he's had mercy on us? What a helpful way to think about evangelism, telling other people how much the Lord has done for us. Sometimes it can be really hard to get into a conversation about religion. Sometimes it can be really hard to get into a conversation about anything really of lasting importance. 
Sometimes it's a lot easier to get into conversations about ourselves and about our stories. Brothers and sisters, be on the lookout for opportunities to tell others how much the Lord has done for you. May our witness be the means that God uses to rescue more and more people from the power of Satan through the grace of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Please pray with me. Father, we acknowledge that your son, Jesus, is the mighty one who is able to deliver. God, we thank you that you have delivered us from our own sin, from bondage to Satan, from blindness, from misery, from death. Thank you, Jesus, that you were laid in a tomb to pay for our debt. God, I pray that as we glimpse your power and your glory and your saving mercy, that you would make us those who want to be with you, Lord, who long for communion with you. Would you make us into those who are eager to speak about how much the Lord has done for us? And would you give us ample opportunity to do that? We ask these things in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.